This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. Michael J. It's finals week. I've had a fever the last two days, but... When you say a fever, you mean you've had the fever, like you, you just got to play in DI tournaments? Well, that too. But no, the last two days I was pretty much better than right before a bunch of my big assignments are due for, for editing. So I just had to sit in bed and like basically is just it, do nothing. Is this your excuse for not getting our podcast up? Because it's been like two weeks since we recorded it. Yeah, let's 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 go with that. No excuses, dude. No excuses. Do you know how many times Top of a Podcast is missed in how its many, history? How many times? Zero times. Okay. Zero times is it not been done. All right, all right, all right, all right. I won't ask you about Top 8 Magic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, uh, a couple of things here. So I wrote... I'm very erratic at writing these days, so I used to write as many as three articles a week mm-hmm. at one point. Um, when I when I did, when I was doing um, uh, Make the Play Monday, Floors Rewards Friday at, mm-hmm. at TCG Player, I was literally writing three three times a week. I was writing Monday and Friday at TCG Player, and I was writing, additionally on Monday, I was writing um, this column, which I will probably revisit at some point, called Level 1 on the Mothership. I think they gave it to, I think, Reed Duke after me. But I, I invented level one. But I was writing as many as three times a week at one point. But now I, like, barely ever write. So, yeah, you only write, like, once every couple of months now. So it's, whatever, is it May? Yeah. This is my third article of the year, right? So, and that, I mean, and I think I wrote two total articles last year. So uh, this is my third article of the year, which was kind of just, it's not like a super serious strategy article, just like a, a eulogy for Sensei's Divining Top. Mm. So um, kind of a... a a combo of, I just have this on the brain. I even, dear listeners, I was like, Roman, can I just read my article from about the eulogy for Sensei's Divining Top as the <laughs> as Ancestor Recall this week? And he's just like, what are you, crazy? <laughs> like, that's just like the worst idea, right? So, um, so we're not going to read that. But I had that on the brain. And then I also had, um, you know, uh, we just did Philosophy of Fire. Mm-hmm. Well, we did it a couple weeks ago. But from the perspective of the readers or listeners, sorry. Uh, it'll it'll be their most recent experience with Ancestor Recall. So I just had those things on the brain. Um, so I chose this article, um, and it's a very different kind of article than we've we've had okay. um, uh, at any point in the last you know seven or eight episodes we've done. And you know, just do normal thing, interrupt or whatever. I don't want to give you too much preamble other than had top on the brain and and um, just into into burn spells. So. <laughs> This is an article uh, from 2005, August 19th, 2005, on Ye Old Star City Games Premium, called Tuning the Second Best Deck. By now, you have probably read the previous articles I've done on Corota Style Red and formed your own opinion, good or bad, on the deck that can be swayed neither by facts nor logic, certainly not the numbers. 
In the unlikely event you haven't, here are the original article and the post-regionals article with Unforged and additional strategies. Coming into U.S. Nationals, those were links. <laughs> just a presumption <laughs> yeah, that people had read. It makes like, more sense when you're reading. <laughs> yeah, when you're reading it, those were like, it's just a presumption that people had read like my previous uh, installments of this deck. Yeah, back in, <laughs> back in 2005. Back in 2005. Well, they all did. Coming into U.S. Nationals, I knew that Corota Style Red was not the best deck in the format. As you know from my article last week, testing showed Mono Blue to be the best. However, Corota Style Red ended up being the deck I recommended to Josh Ravitz, Steve Saden, and Osip Lebedovich because of French Nationals. I thought that the influx of blue decks at the top of the French field would make for sticky matchups for my version of Mono Blue, Jushi Apprentices being faster than Magpies after all, and at the same time give the red deck something to beat up as the deck performs well against Mono Blue and even better against the beatdown decks that try to prey on Mono Blue. As you probably know, Josh kicked ass and finished top eight. Steve could have practiced more, but honestly just lost two coin flips to go one and two in the constructed portion before dropping, while Osip simply picked the wrong deck for the tournament. Tooth and nail. Remember how I closed the deck that never was last week? If French Nationals had turned out differently, I would have unequivocally recommended Quash Blue, which would simply have meant Josh losing an actually unfavorable matchup to Neil Reeves in the top eight, rather than a favorable one. Back in June, I was eliminated from regionals by tooth and nail in a match where my opponent played badly and I resolved Sewing Salt in both the games he won. Ooh. Do you know what Sewing Salt is? Like destroy... Or is it Exile Land? Or yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's two RR. Yeah, uh, Exile's a land. And you get to search there for all copies of that. All land. copies of so Exile. Them. If you get like an Urza's Tower, it gets all it gets of the Urza's Towers, out. which means that it will turn off his Urza Tron, right? This obviously shouldn't add up to a match loss. That's back when I used to say should. I don't, I don't say should. But the answer Arsenal out of Corota Star Red just wasn't there to exploit the asymmetries. In one game, I salted his tower and saw he had the big six. So I played around his Mind Slaver, flower style. So uh, just to explain this, you get to search their hand and their library. So I saw that he had, when I say the big six, he had the card Mind Slaver in his hand. Mm -hmm. And so I expected him to make his best play, which was to drop Mind Slaver with sub 10 mana and say go, when he instead just said go. So he had the mana to play the Mind Slaver and then just did not play it. This cost me a turn, and I was no longer fast enough to race his top deck tooth and nail a turn or two later. Had I known he was just going to hee-haw his opening, I would have played Arc Slogger and killed him with an untap. But I was afraid he would, you know, kill my whole board and deck me rather than doing nothing whatsoever. My bad. In the third and deciding game, I so insulted him again, but he played four Kodama's Reaches and toothed me out when I had him dead on board. So just the implication here, I had one game one, which is it's a pretty good matchup game one, but not like overwhelming at, at, mm -hmm. at regionals time. Tooth and Nail was largely considered the deck to beat, as I recall. I think it took the vast majority of, of invitations at regionals that year. Uh, but my deck was pretty good against it. And then, you know, we were prepared at least. So uh, just to explain the Arc Slogger sequence, if he has six mana, he can play Mind Slaver, but not use it. It takes 10 total. It takes mana. 10 to Yeah, yep. so... 
so I thought he would just drop it, and then I didn't want him to drop it and then beat me, because I, if I had known he was just going to make take this line, I would have just played my Arc Slogger. But the problem is, if you make that play, he can just deck me or something. Do you know what Arc Slogger does? It's RR3 for a 4-5 creature, 4-5 beast. And it has the ability R colon, so it's a poly ability. R colon, turn over the top 10 cards of your library, deal 2 damage to target creature or player. Oh, wow. Yeah, so um, he could he could just deck me and kill my Arc Slogger. With the Mind Slaver. With, with, yeah, if he Mind Slaver me. If you play the Arc Slogger Yeah, because he'll use my mana, right? So... Uh, but if he if he's not gonna, if I'm just like I just I read him for making the correct play and he just didn't do it right mm-hmm. so if um if I play the the arc slogger I'll just I'll just kill him right <laughs> yeah but instead I did not I saw I time walked myself because I say like, I guess if I hadn't seen his hand right like maybe I just naturally play the arc slogger mm-hmm. there you know which is that's weird right yeah. um uh but I'd seen his hand and then I don't know if that's that's right or not uh you know this has been. 13 years now since since this 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 tournament happened but yeah presumably you basically never lost a game uh with this deck if you untapped with arc slogger and play because the implication is if you have like 30 cards left in your library that's like 10 damage right you're like that's like uh three activations of the arc slogger which is six the arc slogger itself is four all you would have had to do is any amount of damage like even up to 10 damage before turn six which is just not difficult <laughs> you know so um, but anyway, I lost. So I'm, I guess I'm just complaining about that loss at this point in the article. <laughs> I learned, perhaps too late, that it wasn't enough to just cripple the opponent with Sowing Salt. If I didn't kill him immediately, he could pull out a close game with a late game tooth and nail for Sundering Titan. I had been playing for months with the strategic belief that casting a Sowing Salt was like wheeling an octogenarian heiress to the top of the stairs. It didn't quite end her, but a slight breeze, or perhaps passing toddler, would be enough to send her tumbling to her doom, whereupon her fortune would scatter across the foyer to be picked up by my grubby and opportunistic fingers. I assumed that whenever I lost one of the games where tooth and nail lost all its power plants or some such, it was because I, and Kurodistai Red, had done something wrong. Not necessarily so. The Kodama's Reach version could pull out of Sewing Salt and resolve a big six or nine the old-fashioned way. So Kodama's Reach is just a three-mana ramp card. Yeah. Uh, you, you get just, a forest, or you get a basic land of your yeah. hand, and you, so you, he you just, like, ramp and grow he for just cast all four and then just hard just, cast. Just, yeah, hard cast. So. The mission, therefore, became to figure out a way to win every game where Tooth is crippled, instead of just winning most of them. The change was a ridiculously simple one. It dawned on me to splash cranial extraction. And that seemed good enough. For a long time, I tested this version, which was based on my regionals deck. Four Sensei's Divine Top. Rest, rest in peace. Rest in peace. <laughs> four Solemn uh, Simulacrum. Four Wayfarer's Bobble. Four Arc Slogger. Three Beacon of Destruction. Four Magma Jet. Four Molten Rain. Four Pulse of the Forge. One Stone Rain. Four Shrapnel Blast. Four Blink Moth Nexus. One Stocking Stones. One Swamp. 18 Mountain. Sideboard. Four Culling Scales, three Cranial Extraction, two Stone Rain, four Unforged, two Boseju, who shelters all. Game ones against Tooth were rough as ever, with Kuroda Star Red winning about two thirds, but not comfortably. The sideboard games were weird. Kuroda Star Red was only losing games where it went first. How does that work? 
I was losing games where I'd cranial reap and sow on turn three when I only had a swamp for black mana, and then follow up with a cranial extraction for tooth and nail the next turn. However, I was never losing games where I drew. The even weirder thing was that I was never casting cranial extraction in these games, just winning with resource control and burn to the dome. Maybe this should have told me something out of play. <laughs> this is where the strength of the network came in. Testing was going well, but the deck could still be improved. One night, Steve said, Why not just add two ice bridges? And I countered with, <laughs> Why not just add four ice bridges? Briefly, the model looked like this. Four Blink Bluff Nexus, one Stocking Stones, one Swamp, four Tendo Ice Bridge, and 14 Mountain. That was the base I actually tested all the way up to Nationals. Inexplicably, it wasn't until last Sunday that I actually drew the Stocking Stones in a game, or at least noticed I had. I called up Josh and told him the stones was never really hurting me, as I had never drawn it and hadn't previously even remembered it was in my deck. But he said he would rather not risk having insufficient red mana and wanted to play 15 mountains. Tendo Ice Bridge actually made the deck less vulnerable to Mindslaver. Sometimes you could burn all your Ice Bridge counters and not present enough red mana for the opponent to use to murder you with Arc Slogger. It was weird, but oddly relevant given the fact that Mindslaver was one of the only two cards that had much strategic value in the Tooth matchup. Is that weird, right? Like, um, uh, do you know what Tendo Ice Bridge is? It's just worse than, than Aether Hub, okay? It has, like, <laughs> two counters, right? No, it's an Aether Hub you only use once. Only once, okay. Yeah, so, like, Aether Hub, as many times as you have energy, you can use. Yeah. This is so literally an Aether Hub you only use once, okay? It's not energy-based. It has a counter on it. You take the counter off for a colored. Mm -hmm. So, in this deck, we're using it so that we can splash a cranial extraction, which costs a single black, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you can also use it to activate just regular red cards, right? If you had to. You don't generally have to. It's, like, 15 mountains and, and tons of search. But... I'm just saying here, like, one of the, so I used to play, like, 10, 10, uh, I used to play a 10-game set before work every day, and I'd play, like, 40 or 50 hours of playtesting every day, back, like, Jesus. at this time in my life. Like, yeah, I mean, I could just, like, easily qualify for the Pro Tour. Like, it's just, it, like, it was, like, casual, you know? Um, and so, like, I was, like, getting into things like, oh, well, the correct line is to blow all of your 10 to Weisbridge counters so that when they Mindslaver you... You don't have enough red mana for them to kill you in one turn with your own arc slogger, then you untap and beat them. You know, mm. like which is like a weird, it's a like weird a, yeah, thing it's to a learn. Weird thing, yeah. Right? You only learn that by playing hundreds of games. <laughs> so it's the next level way to beat Tooth and Nail. <laughs> I mean, look at the stuff that I was uncovering in this testing. It was just like only losing games that I <laughs> went first. Like I actually was looking at this 13 years later. I'm like, maybe I should have taken, you know, had different like, decisions, yeah. right? Like. Maybe I should have cho chosen to draw. I don't know. I mean, that seems really weird, you know, versus just observed things versus actual drivers. But mm. I don't know. That's what the article says. Josh introduced the idea of John Finkel focus. Ooh, like Zeroing in on only what mattered rather than getting greedy. And the numbers improved post-board against Tooth and Nail. Instead of going for Tooth and Nail itself, for Reap and So, if it seemed convenient, we just named Mindslaver and Sundering Titan. So the only cards that ever beat us are Mindslaver and Sundering Titan. So you just cranial those. So like, who cares if they tooth? But there's nothing to get, right? So like, <laughs> that was actually the innovation. This is like they stopped losing, which is lol, right? Like, nice. Um, the irony was that an actual round at nationals, Josh was up against a player who had dropped duplicate on his slogger, 
and who would have wrecked him with tooth and nail, but not necessarily a single titan. Josh showed him cranial extraction and about fell out of his chair. His opponent had two molder slugs in hand, but hadn't dropped either for fear of eating the four-power former arc slogger, and he only had one tooth and nail left in his deck. <laughs> Josh took it, chuckled, and started showing him Pulse of the Forge. That is a player who outsmarted himself. Do you know what Molder Slug is? It's awesome. It's five mana for a 4-6. Okay. On your 4-6 uh, beast. On your upkeep, every player has this ability. On your upkeep, sacrifice an artifact. So you play, like, you just play it against decks that have a lot of artifacts, and they would have to discard, like, you know, destroy their artifacts. So, yeah. But this dude had duplicated Josh's Arc Slugger, <laughs> so if he played his Molder Slug, he would have had to t- <laughs> discard his own duplicate. So... Typically, you would play that in a deck that didn't have a lot of artifacts or any at all, mm-hmm. versus a deck like I'm going to say Affinity, but it was never real. I mean, in the decks I played, it was fast enough to beat Affinity because I was like always had like a bunch of fast answers also, and mm-hmm. this was just the nail in the coffin. But I think it was designed to beat Affinity, and it would not beat Affinity in in the abstract. Like you no, would just get killed. Minute. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's too slow. But like. If you're like, you know, one drop, two drop, slow you down, slow you down, trade, 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 then you play this on turn five, then they can't come back. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those. I guess it's like equivalent of Kataki, but five mana instead of five <laughs> instead mana of So like, maybe it's it's no Kataki. Anyway, but it was awesome at the time. Trust me. I loved playing the card. The final sideboard came via a combination of me, Osip, and Josh together. Both of them wanted to beat Mono Blue, given French Nationals, and that meant reinstating the Bosiju Fireball combination. In fact, Osip wanted to go up to three Bosijus and four Fireballs, an even more aggressive setup than the original version. Unlike U.S. Regionals, where Medium Green was the second most prolific deck, it looked like sword-encrusted troll aesthetics would be nowhere to be seen at Nationals. Therefore, we decided to go with zero on Forge. As it happens, the rise in blue and the disappearance of Beacon of Creation made the metagame call a correct one, hence the Nationals version. Flora's red. Played by Josh Rabbits. Four Solemn Simulacrum, four Arc Slogger, 15 Mountain, one Swamp, four Blinkmoth Nexus, four Tendo Ice Bridge, four Sensei's Divine Top, four Wayfarer's Bobble, three Beacon of Destruction, four Magma Jet, four Pulse of the Forge, four Shrapnel Blast, four Molten Rain, one Sewing Salt. Sideboard, four Cullion Scales, three Cranial Extraction, uh, four Fireball, one Sewing Salt, three Boseju who shelters all. So, like we assumed at the beginning of this article, most of the readers will have read the previous two or three versions of this deck. Mm-hmm. And we had l- links to them, so if they hadn't, they could have referenced that. Listeners to this podcast don't know that privilege, so I'm just going to go over some of these yeah, things quickly. It. So, uh, the card Calling Scales, I think, is the main one that we have to talk about. So, Calling Scales is a three casting cost artifact. Um, and it has uh, the text, At the beginning of your upkeep, destroy target non-land permanent with the lowest converted mana cost among non-land permanents in play. Right? So if there are things that are less expensive than the calling scales in play, or, or, le- or any other thing also could cost three, it will destroy it. But eventually, if there's nothing in play that, that isn't cheaper than the calling scales, it will destroy itself. So what I figured out was that Calling Scales was the best in combination with Sensei's Divining Top. If the opponent had nothing smaller than the Calling Scales, you leave the Sensei's Divining Top in play, and then on your upkeep, the Calling Scales targets the Divining Top. Before it can be destroyed, you flip the top onto your yeah. library. You have no loss of card advantage. You're just taxing yourself by one mana, and they don't have any permanents that cost less than the Calling Scales. If they have permanents that cost less than the Calling Scales, you just flip the top before your upkeep. You can flip it 
at the end of their turn, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's not in play, and then you just target their permanent. So the reason this was important was there was a card called Oriok Champion at the time, which was uh, white, 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 for 1-1 one, one protection from red, protection from black, and gains gains life yeah. also. So it was like a combination of a soul warden and protection from red is really powerful. And they also have the card Worship. Worship is, you know, you basically can't yeah, die yeah, if you have a creature die. in play. So that, it's like a lock against a deck that can't destroy an enchantment. But what we found was we just kill all their creatures. <laughs> the Worship doesn't do anything. Else, yeah. yeah. So... It was weird because the white deck has full of cards that are awesome against red. Like, Oriok Champion is protection from red, right? Mm -hmm. And um, Worship is just, just a yeah. prototypical anti-red card. And then they just also had other good cards, and they could never beat our deck, especially after Cyborg. It was like, White Weenie was the cakewalk matchup, in my recollection. And I think, like, Josh and Steve went completely undefeated against it. It was, like, I think, the, probably the most popular deck at Nationals that year. Uh, no, it wasn't the best deck. Mono Blue was the best deck. But destroyed that archetype uh, with this version of red. So the other reason that the that this was kind of an innovative uh, take on red was when I started with um, Mashashiro Kuroda's deck, which had won Protor Kobe the previous year. And uh, it just added some cards from Kamigawa block, most importantly Sensei's Divining Top. And Sensei's Divining Top did a new thing for a mid-range red deck, which was that, you know this from your experience just playing Burn and Modern, you pretty much are a slave to the top of your library, right? Like, if you don't draw... If, you, if your deck comes out the way you want it to, no one can beat you, yeah. right? But once you start having to make resource decisions, your cards are pretty much worse than everybody else's cards. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's what happens, right? Like, like Lightning Bolt and Lightning Helix are insane until you start comparing their overall damage output with Tarmogoyf, where Tarmogoyf is two mana for, like, 14 damage. You're talking... <laughs> here's, like, one mana for three damage one time, right? So... The, this was the first time that a red deck, you know, because of the combination of Magma Jet and uh, Sensei's Divining Top, and to a lesser degree, Wayfarer's Bauble and, and some of the other search cards like Solemn Simulacrum or even Beacon of Destruction, could regulate the, its draw between land and spells. So you had this situation where we had big burn spells, like four fireballs on our sideboard. Beacon of Destruction costs five, right? We're like, well, I actually need a fifth land. In order to cast a Speaking of Destruction, well, I could just go get it because I have Sensei's Divining Top, right? A normal red deck is like, oh, I really hope there's a land somewhere on top of my deck right now. I'm not going to be able to cast this card. We could, we could suddenly start making decisions that were very different than historical mm -hmm. red decks. And then finally, um, the combination between Sensei's Divining Top and the card Shrapnel Blast was unbelievable, right? So you Shrapnel Blast use, uh, uh, with the Sensei's Divining Top, right? So uh, you tap the top to uh, flip it to the top of your library and draw a card. It's still in play. The ability to draw a card is on the stack. You respond by Shrapnel Blasting. Mm -hmm. The Sensei's Divining Top has fulfilled the condition to cast the Shrapnel Blast, but then you still get to draw the card, which is yeah. unreal powerful, given how, because Shrapnel Blast is so powerful, right? And mm -hmm. then, um, so we had, like, seven cards in our deck that just said deal five. And because of that, you could, if you ever untapped with an Arc Slogger in play, they were dead, right? So anyway, I just want to just, because I know some of these are... It's really interesting to see, like, a red deck like this that's not... Like lightning bolts and little dudes. I mean, this deck was awesome against fast decks, which is, I think, one yeah. of the things that that is. Uh, but if you look at it as a modern reader, like, what do you do? Like, this deck was literally awesome against decks that were dropping, uh, you know, slits, you know, haste creatures on turn two, or mm -hmm. like two ones for one. Was like, that was like, the best matchup. Um, you, uh, so, and also, so we had three both sieges and four fireballs after sideboarding. Our plan was to t so. The blue deck's typical plan was to side in bribery, bribery your creatures, and then beat you with them. 
So our plan was to take out all of our creatures, oh, including sick. even Solemn Simulacrum, right? And then board in the and then board and in, the fireballs. Yeah, Besiege and Fireball. And then, so we tried, like, Besiege Boil for a while, for example. Mm-hmm. That was, like, okay. It's the Strill Islands? All those islands, yeah. But the, the best blue deck at Nationals was actually an Urzatron deck. So you might get, like, an island or two, but you weren't going to stop their broken yeah. mana base. So that so we went with um, the Fireball plan because Fireball is also applicable in other matchups. So it doesn't seem like it's the best against, like, Red Weenie or something. They play a 2-1. Yeah. But, like, just casting two mana to kill, like, a 2-1 creature is not the worst, right? It's just any any port in a storm, right? Because if we ever get to the point where we're casting our 4s and 5s, we're hugely ahead. So... Anyway, I just wanted to explain some of those cards because they're, you know, I think people who, who are just picking up the game now, like even yourself who are, you know, aspiring to be a professional magic player have no idea what a lot of these cards do. I. Anyway, let's continue. Matchups! Tooth and nail! The deck this version of Corotosile Red was tuned to beat. Tooth and nail was the most popular deck at U.S. Nationals. So who can say if this will remain the case? I believe there were zero copies of Tooth and Nail in the top eight. <laughs> You are comfortably a 60-40 favorite in Game 1, and the matchup might actually approach two-thirds. Players who aren't winning this matchup simply aren't playing all the tricks. You can't leave stray mana, and you can't miss a point of burn. Tooth and Nail can explode out of nowhere to win, so assume any games that you are losing via one or two life point margins, or with cards in your library and Arc Slogger in play, are your fault, and not the decks. Oddly, you win almost every game where you go second in sideboarded duels, so winning either game one or game two is usually the nail in the coffin. Strategically focus on Mind Slaver and Sundering Titan as your cranial extraction targets, and the opponent will not likely be able to beat you using his creature assault. Corota Style Red was built to beat up on much faster decks, such as Red Deck Wins or White Weenie. Clunky 5-5s five and 4-6s without swords or Blanchwood armor backing them up should not pose any kind of a threat to Arc Slogger and Pulse of the Forge. Aggro Red slash Red Deck wins. This matchup was originally a 9-to-1 favorite for Corotus-style Red, but the more recent versions using main deck Zozu the Punisher and Sword of Fire and Ice are obviously more dangerous than the ones with stupid stone reins. I went 2-1 against Red Deck wins at regionals, losing only a match where my only spells were one Wayfarer's Bobble and one Pulse of the Forge in Game 1, and I double mulliganed and never played a second land in Game 3. At Nationals, Josh went 1-1, one and one and Steve went 0-2. <laughs> but one of his 0-2 was against Jerry T in a feature match. In their defense, both players would have won all the Red Deck wins matches had they won their coin flips. Steve, in particular, had a superb anti-beatdown draw with Wayfarer's Bobble into Solemn Simulacrum, but because he was on the draw, he took too much damage from a second-turn Chrome Mox plus Zozu, to properly exploit it. Do you know what Zozu the Punisher is? When you play a land, you take two? Anyone who plays a land takes two. two. So he had like a land, a land, um, like a ramping hand, but he was going second. If he went first, he would have just, he literally, his hand said, take six extra. But if he went first before the Zozu was in play, he would have just landed his Solemn Simulacrum and then taken only two. And like, he he would have been more than established enough to, Mm -hmm. to, to win. It probably was a tight game. I would still consider the second most popular deck to be a very favorable matchup. That said, Teddy Card Game has called Fireball into question more than once. We bring it in against Red Deck Wins, but because they have Sword of Fire and Ice, we can't say it is empirically better than Unforge was. Just something to think about. White Weenie. 
of the three most popular archetypes, all of which are good matchups, this one is the best. Josh and Steve won a combined 4-0 against White Weenie, with Josh losing only a single game one to a top-deck dust drinker, merely because he didn't win the flip. Both of them beat professed god draws with burn to the face and a certain three-mana artifact. White Weenie simply has no way to fight four Magma Jet, four Fireball, four Calling Scales reliably. And the saddest thing in the world is a worship with no one around it. Well, it might be sadder to aim Tarashi's grasp at a Calling Scales, only to take five instead of gaining three. So that's actually a reference to something that happened um, in, I think, the match that Josh locked top eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had, he had um, basically locked his opponent under, under Calling Scales. And after long last, his opponent drew Tarashi's Grasp. Tarashi's Grasp is a three-casting cost sorcery. Sorcery. It's white and two. Destroy target artifact or enchantment. You gain life equal to the converted mana cost. So that's not that bad, right? It's a disenchant, not that bad. Um, you gain life. So he, he, he's been abused badly by this Culling Scales for several turns. He goes to Tarashi's Grasp, thinking he's going to gain three. But instead, Josh sacrifices it to Shrapnel Blast. <laughs> Brains him for five in the match. And I believe that was the match that locked Joshua top eight. In one sense, the rise of Urzatron Blue is very good for Kurodasaw Red because White Weenie follows suit. Consider this discourse between myself and Dan Paskins. So, playing the part of Michael J. will be Roman Fusco. <laughs> I will play the part of—Dan uh, Paskins is one of the greatest Red Deck designers in the world. He's a, a British player who was— uh, very, very well regarded at this point. I think he was a British national champion at one point, or at least top two or something, but he was really well regarded Red Deck player. Go ahead, Michael J. Sorry I betrayed you and all true Red Mages by adding cranial extraction, but I lost a tooth with Kodama's Reach after resolving Sewing Salt and didn't know what else to do about Mind Sleeper. Does that count as the fear if you annihilate the white decks designed to beat you with their foolish champions, circles, and life gain? Cranial extraction isn't really a sign of the fear, although it doesn't match up to the usual criteria of dealing damage or killing something in play. But then, nor does Sensei's divining top. Beating white decks is more than acceptable, especially the people who turned up specifically thinking that they were bound to beat the red deck. Letting the blue decks run rampant was pretty weak, though. It made for very unwelcome reading. If nothing else, the white decks should have been able to stop them. If they can't even do that, then what's the point of them? Great, great accent. Thank you. You didn't cast me in your movie, though. Your movie, which has, like, a middle-aged Asian dude? Come on! Urzatron Blue, the clear best deck in the format. Urzatron Blue is not a favorable matchup. Luckily... It's not like Kamigawa block, where the number two deck just cannot beat the number one deck, though. Josh is testing with something like 45% versus Eugene Harvey and 50% against Adam Horvath, game ones only, which is about even if you were playing against the best players in the country. Eugene Harvey was like, most people think he, I'm not, it's actually not true that most people think he should be in the Hall of Fame because he's not in the Hall of Fame, but like he was certainly a Hall of Fame caliber player uh, at his height. Post boards. You would much rather be playing against John Sonny's version, which is tuned for the mirror, than the touch black deck. The reason is that Sonny's version just has counters and bombs, and therefore falls into your cranial extraction, the Mind Slaver, Sewing Salt, the Urzatron, 
and bocede you through the counter plants. Whereas DeRose's version will just cranial you for your cranial extractions, making for a much more fair and therefore harder to win fight. Not that bad either. Uh, the top three of U.S. Nationals in this year were the team, the top three players of the team, and they were all mono blue decks. <laughs> so two Urzatron decks and uh, Josh lost to Neil Reeves, who was playing a Jushi Blue. Uh, medium and aggro green. These matchups are unchanged from regionals era, but get a lot worse boarded because red no longer has Unforge. Uh, do you know what Unforge is? It's a card that costs R2 for... Uh, it, it destroys um, uh, an equipment for R2, uh, but then also does two to the creature wearing it. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this was so good isn't just because it's potentially a two-for-one, but you couldn't target a troll aesthetic. But people would uh... tap out uh, to put a sword on a troll ascetic, right? So they're like, oh, my sword tro troll ascetic is now protection from red, okay? But so they don't have G1 open to regenerate Which the troll ascetic. So you kill the sword, and it kills the troll ascetic, which is insane, right? Because they're like, all my chips are in on the troll ascetic now, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, you two-for-one them for the two best cards against you in the entire matchup. And, um, like, if you couldn't destroy a sword that the troll ascetic was wearing, it was pretty hard to beat it, right? Like... Uh, it's protection for red, so it's really hard to block, and it kills you in, like, three attacks. So um, we cut on Forge because we didn't think people were going to play medium green at Nationals. We were correct, right? So Josh stormed through beating largely the decks that we predicted. Rats. Imagine White Weenie, but with the creatures half the size and sometimes twice the cost. <laughs> like medium green, the loss of Unforge makes beating rats harder than at regionals, but the non-green versions have no shamans for red's culling scales. That was a good matchup. Uh, there was, I believe, one rats in the top eight of the of, uh, Nationals that year. Mono, blue, control. This matchup is typically blues in game one and reds after boards. At Nationals, Josh was one mana shy of winning game one and got flooded in the subsequent duels, even the one he had both Siju and resolved cranial extraction. Josh saw triple mana source with his Sensei's Divining Top eight Ooh. different times which explains the 0-3 and quick exit at the able hands of Mr. Reeves. Josh says our sideboard strategy was off a little bit. He took out... Minus four, Psalms, Milalkram, minus four, Arkslogger, minus one, Shrapnel Blast, minus one, Mountain, four, three, Cranial Extraction, four, Fireball, and three, Boseju, who shelters all. The theory was that we wanted to outland the blue decks. Mm -hmm, and then Fireball yeah, them. Yeah, but Josh just ended up getting flooded. <laughs> In game two, he had too many lands and didn't even get a Bosiju out of it. In most matchups, we would side out a Magma Jet, but Neil's deck had Jushi Apprentice, so that wasn't an option. I think the optimal swap may be... Minus four, Solemn's Milacrum, minus four, Arc Slogger, minus two, Mountain, plus three, Cranial Extraction, plus four, Fireball, plus three, Bosiju, who shelters all. To his credit, Neil sideboarded really well. We were expecting Twin Cast, which was assumed was his only out against Bosiju, but Uyo was a surprise. More than being just a guy, or just better than whatever he's taking out, Uyo is actually superb against the red deck. Like in Limited, either you kill it immediately or you lose to it. The big 4-4 is particularly strong against Kuroda-style red, because after we don't have any real non-sorcery or instant threats after board. So, I don't think I talked about this when I actually wrote this article, but... Neil Reeves uh, was good friends with Mark Herberholtz, who I was also good friends with. But Mark and Neil were on the same deck, so we were at Nationals. And I was just, like, bragging about how our sideboard strategy was completely unbeatable by blue. Like, we would lose game ones, but we could just never lose after sideboarding. Mm -hmm. And so that actually made it so, like, it, 
Mark Herberholtz is approximately the best deck designer in the United States at this point, right? So there were a couple of really good deck designers, but he was uh, he was pretty ascendant um, at this point in his career. And so he and Neil figured out how to beat my sideboard strategy because I explained it to them. So, like, if they were coming in cold, they probably wouldn't have known, like, the Uyo tricks and stuff. And Josh got flooded anyway. But, like, we tested the sideboards a lot, right? There are almost no cards that a conventional deck, which is based on bribery, would be able to beat you with, right? Mm-hmm. So he's, just, he's bringing in, like, literally a 4-4 creature for 6 that has, like, a pretty good ability against a deck that's based on spells, right? So we had, like, no creatures after sideboarding, mm-hmm. so, like... We couldn't even race a 4-4 for 6 if it came down to playing there. The only question left is whether the deck is still good. And I think it is. Going into Nationals, most of the people in the know I talked with recognized it as the second best deck. And even I liked Quash Blue better. It has the purely best spell, Pulse of the Forge, and the purely best creature, Arkslogger but doesn't play the most actually broken mechanics. Corrode-style red is kind of like Teen Titans and Versus system. It's not the best deck, but if you know all the tricks, you can do impressive things to the board and, and simulate a degenerate turn. But you're not actually broken the same way Curve Sentinels with Bastion is. It's a completely different game. In the same way, Corrode-style red doesn't have an Urzatron or an ultimate foil and damping matrix. It is just a good overall package, and certainly the best red deck that matches up well with most of the field. A week ago, its best matchups happened to be the three most popular decks, but that can change. Most importantly, if you're not good at managing resources, if you're addicted to your top, or if you can't properly count to 20 when you're being pressured by creatures on the ground, you're going to be frustrated playing it. I would suggest counting to 9 rather than 20. May your opponents lose the flip. Love, Mike. Oh, quick shout out to the forums. I'll read this bit at the end. The average forum poster apparently doesn't read entire articles and is willing to prove that to everyone on a daily basis, but conversely, there are some real gems out there. Coming as someone whose magic writing career originated in plain text news groups, I just wanted to thank Gideon, with a Y, with whom I had a semi-clash of my forums and articles earlier this year. Gideon pointed out Damping Matrix in White Weenie months before the pro community had it. It was only by reading one of his posts when I was working on my own bad White Weenie decks back in April that I was able to discover Culling Scales and eventually its absurd interaction with Sensei's Divine Top against aggressive decks, little artifacts, and all that. For me, being open to something when I had a preconceived notion that could be improved was the key in making one of my other decks better. Thanks, man. That's cool. How magnanimous of me to have added that at the end. <laughs> what a good guy this Michael J must be. All right, what did you think of this? This article is very different than the ones we usually... Yeah, it's, it's not one of those, like, here's, what, here's like the takeaway from this, right? Like, here's the lesson, the philosophy. It's more, this was a, a tournament... Here was the second best deck that we chose to play other than the best deck. For... We knew it wasn't the best deck. Yeah. But, but we but, thought but... the other decks were popular. That's the thing. Okay. So it's like... So we thought that Mono Blue was the best deck. Yeah. Not Urzatron Blue, the Jushi oh, deck. Oh, okay. So we're like some version of either Jushi. So my Mono Blue deck was um, 
a thieving magpie based deck. I called it Quash Blue. It was also it was like probably pretty similarly good to the Jushi deck. Mm-hmm. Who knows, right? But what we did was we focused on having so that deck was traditionally really good against our red deck, right? Mm-hmm. But then we just put all this effort into having this unbeatable sideboard with Bosiju and Fireball against that deck. Um and they're just like, oh well if we, we always win we always win this matchup one two. And then our deck is insane against Red Weenie, White Weenie, and Tooth and Nail. Oh, it's, like, pretty good against Tooth yeah, and Nail. Yeah, it's, like, 60-40. Like, yeah, but, like, the, I, I don't know how much better you can get. Like, Tooth and Nail is, like, the template degenerate standard deck, right? Like, it's, like, go off on turn three sometimes, you know? Like, like Mind Slaver you, or, like, just just kills you on the spot, or, like, makes two 11-11 indestructibles with one spell. You know, like... It's like the template degenerate deck, and we had like we had like a positive matchup against it and a great sideboard plan, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're like, all right, there's that. And then versus like two then had a really hard time against White Weenie and Red Weenie in game one, right? Like really, really hard time. Like it could win. It was like the you know, it was like the the known degenerate deck, but like people have, you know, figured out other strategies and we're like, wow, this is not the best deck. But this deck has some good matchups across the board, and we know how to play it. That's the other thing, right? Like, this was a deck where there was very thin margins. So if you were, like, on the right side of the margin, you have win coin flips and don't miss one don't miss one GD life point, right? You were, like, massively advantaged okay. versus someone who maybe didn't win the coin flip or missed one life point, right? There's, like, really thin margins, but we, we had really solid strategy around it. And we're like, this is a, a, a classic pick your spot, right? Because Tooth and Nail, I guess, according to reading the article, was the most popular deck, which is not surprising. As I recall, there were zero copies in top eight. But was was this style of red deck? Was it was there a were there a lot of people playing this deck? Or no, there like, were like two people played this deck <laughs> in the tournament, and one of them made top eight. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that's a good. I mean, that's just how we ran it back in the day. Like, we yeah. always had, like, a sweet deck for the Pro Tour or, or Nationals or whatever. Like, that was my... I, I had a streak where I think we had, like, a Nationals top eight. Like, a weird deck that put somebody in the top eight of U.S. Nationals, like, every year consecutively for, for multiple years. That's cool. I like I like yeah. those. That was always... Like, I would always get, like... Because the community was different back then. Like, there wasn't really... Mo- I, I guess there was Moto, but, like, not... But there wasn't as much, here's the yeah. data, here's, like, the, yeah. the, the breakdown of the metagame. Just, I just, reading this in hindsight, I don't think I had ever played Moto yet at the time. That okay. We played Paper Magic. People would come to my house, and we would play Paper Magic. And I would play, like... We didn't have Cockatrice. We had, had Apprentice. I would play against myself at Apprentice countless hours preparing for Pro Tours. Like and then we would we had mailing lists and just reported back to each other. It was a completely different than it is now. No, that's, that's and cool. so you know, a lot of people are like, you know, the pros back then aren't as good as now because we have Moto and you know, Moto proves out so much data, but we're like pros back then were better because we didn't have Moto to teach us anything. We had to learn ourselves. So so the community was different. So I would always get pinged by like random Americans like on AIM or whatever. Mm-hmm. We did completely different social media too. It's like all right, what's the secret deck for this year's nationals? <laughs> and I even had like pro tour champions who just wouldn't go to nationals some years because they're like, "Give me the secret deck," and I'm like, "No." <laughs> or, like, I'll give you the second best secret deck. Herberholtz one year, I wouldn't give him the number one deck. I gave him the number two deck. It turns out the number, well, in my mind, the number <laughs> turns out the number two deck was the stone best deck I had made that year. 
we all crushed it was equivalent of like the star city open series yeah like but it was like only um north of new york like me steve uh paul george like like i had like chad castell crushed the equivalent of the star city open series for like three months with this deck but it was the sec. i thought it was the second best deck for nationals but i wouldn't give him the good deck but the good deck was horrible that weekend <laughs> couldn't beat the deck to beat but yeah, anyway, they literally just not go if they couldn't get the secret deck. But mm-hmm. Anyway, um, it was it was different back then, right? Like now, yeah. There's there's so much information. There's so much. Like now, I have an idea, and I think I'm so smart. There's like people have already thirty versions of it on MTG Goldfish already, right? Yeah. You know, like maybe they're not as good, but somebody had like a, or maybe mine is not as good, right? But somebody that, had that, an idea. That's a little sad. Like I wish there wasn't as much open information anymore because, I mean, at, at the Pro Tour, it's like his Pro Tour on Cat's coming up. Do you think that there's really going to be some surprise deck that comes out so of the shadows you, and gets people? I'll give you the parallel. When I was okay. talking about this particular secret deck, Herbal just didn't go to Nationals this year because I wouldn't give him... I told I would give him the this deck I'm about to talk about instead of the one that Will was like, or Oza saw me playing it where I was at the 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 Invitational. Mm-hmm. He's just like, do not play this deck at Regionals, right? Like, we need to save this deck. It's too good to use at Regionals, right? So... I didn't, but then it was really bad against Solar Flare, and then that week was the week Solar Flare blew up in in the U.S. It was like barely a blip, mm. and then we were like, well, "What do we do?" Like we put all this work into this deck. This deck is basically unbeatable, and it can't beat Solar Flare. We're like, so we decided maybe people won't play Solar Flare. Fifty percent of the people played Solar Flare that year. It was that's an unheard of percentage of people because adopting a deck. So. You'll think this is funny because of the website you write for sometimes. The re- the other deck was a blue-white control deck, mm-hmm. which is, like, basically built on my Jushi Blue Mono Blue uh, version, with like, but with just some white cards, but it was otherwise a mono blue deck. It wasn't, like, a, quote, blue-white deck, but it had the card Spell Snare. And, like, no one—people were not sure that Spell Snare was a playable card. Can you can you imagine? That's crazy. That? I mean, I mean, my only interaction with Pulse Stars is modern. So yeah, but it's insane, right? Yeah. It's like one of the best cards you get. People weren't sure. They're like, "What if they don't have a two drop?" Like that's a thing someone would say, yeah. right? But like the reason that we it ended up being so good was we figured you. This actually seemed obvious to you. We just spell snared their signets. So like somebody taps out for a. So there's two forks you could take. You either signet on turn two and then you have four mana on turn three. Or the other thing you could do is not signet on turn two. Signet on turn three and then have Signet and land up so you can cast a two cast and cost counter spell, depending mm. on your archetype. But would no matter when there or then there was also Karoos back then. So um uh do you know what a Karoo is? It's a what we called them Karoos, but there's it's named after a card was an actual card from a previous set, which is called Karoo. But there are cards like Boros Garrison. Have you ever heard of this card? Yeah. Yeah, so they're, they tap for double mana, but when they come into play tapped, when they come into play, they bounce a land. Oh yeah, they bounce, bounce land. Yeah, yeah. So we called them Karoos. Um, but so for regionals that year, because Osa forbade me from playing the secret deck, which is just so good, I actually accidentally invented Budget Boros. Julian Levin made top eight, but then lost a lost a squeaker. But then, and I lost uh, to time because I got in a fight with a judge about whether or not my opponent had um, activated his Sensei's Divining Top at the end of his turn or not. He's like, I did. I'm like, no, you didn't. And he was like, <laughs> and so like I I went to time and said, and then missed top eight on a on a on a non intentional draw. But then Budget Boros just crushed it all during all the other regionals and championships that year. Anyway, yeah, spell snare your uh, spell snare your your signet man. It was like 
people were not sure the card was bad. The, the, the first time I saw the card, I saw it, uh, Aaron Forsythe handed me a copy of one at, uh, cause I, I used to be, um, color commentator at Pro Tour booths. He's like, what do you think mm-hmm. about this card? And he handed me one and I'm like, cause it was before Dissension had mm-hmm. been printed. And I was just like, my first blush reaction was, I don't know, maybe the sideboard. Cause I didn't know, I wasn't certain someone would have, would have a two drop. And even if they had a two drop, did I care about countering it? Right. The applications of spell snare are everything from countering a remand or a mana leak to countering a signet to countering a a bob, whatever you know, drop whatever it. two drop they have. It was like it, the most insane card, right? But people didn't even realize how powerful it was, and because of it, there was no deck that played it, right? So a lot of the decks were really proactive at this point, and so you would make this this blue deck that was just used cards like spell snare or remand to buy time. Not to control the game, right? And then that was a completely different way of approaching decks. Anyway, what about this art? So I'm going to say it's hard to apply some of the things, only yeah. because of the information age we're living in and how, like, so much information is just, just on the Internet. But, like, what I was going to say is I don't, for the upcoming Pro Tour, Ramon Cat, I'm skeptical that there's going to be some drastically new deck that a team you know builds and crushes the event with right like it's people are gonna their teams are probably gonna bring mardu a version of zombies you know i i had forgotten about how how deep i used to go on decks like with Mm -hmm. this like like i consider myself a very good naya or boros player in modern right like especially in mirror like i just like you put that deck in front of me, I feel like if I'm not grossly unlucky, I put myself on having a great record on the day, right? Um, and, but it's just like intuition, understanding which cards are good, you know, which, you know, when, when is my opponent going to screw up and, and show me his neck? You know, like that, th- those are the skills that you have here. But we used to go so deep on the strategy, like would understand the implications of every card in our deck. Mm-hmm. Like, 15 mountains versus 14 mountains and and a and a manland was a thing we would spend time talking about right like well the whole tendo icebridge thing is huge too like, or the tooth and nail yeah, like, the, the, these things weren't done back then right this is like that was an innovative strategy hmm. and so if you just like stretch like most of like the you know what i would say the weird rogue decks that we had going into a lot of these pro tours and nationals like we had like very specific arcane plans about how to access single copies of cards under under pressure, which like how you would sequence things, mm, and then okay. and so, I, and then I had certainly lost that at some point. Like I mean, obviously, when you go from playing not even fifty hours, but like even ten hours a week of Magic, like like not just like I probably play I probably play ten hours of Moto Rando this week, right? But it's just like goofing around with random decks, right? I'm talking about intense, like evaluation, reevaluation, looking at individual cards, like grinding against players of like equivalent skill to me, or playing against myself and understanding both sides of a of a matchup. So I just you know stopped doing that at some point. I remember I was doing commentary at a Star City Open a few years ago, and I was talking to some of Jerry's guys. I just dismissed um, what's the name of the green white de- Maverick, the green white deck in Legacy. I was just like, oh, that deck sucks. Like, I don't like it. And yeah, I, I had whatever reasons I have in my head for why not to like a particular deck in, in Legacy. I just talked to two of Jerry's guys who were like really highly successful at Maverick, like the kind of guys who would win the Open. And, the, 
and the articulation they had and the elegance they had and the understanding they had of Maverick mirror matches, how many lands you needed to get into play in order to do this weird sideboard broken thing versus a completely different thing. I was just like, I was talking to Jerry, I'm like, they talk how I used to think, you know? And he's just like, yeah, like, they're just really into Maverick. <laughs> you know, like, if you just go deep on, like, a deck that's, like, way less powerful than other available decks and you're good enough to win a 900-person tournament with it, like, the only way you get there is, you know, through, like, a really deep understanding. And I feel like, I feel like people don't have, like, these, like, really elegant plans and sure, like, deep sure. understanding. It's more of like this card beats this card. or, or I, I think part of it's because the cards are so fast. Like, how do you... Or they're so, like, self-explanatory. Well, that's part of it. But, like, if your experience of playing a deck, of playing against a deck is, they're going to play a 3-2 first striker on turn one and a Heart of Kieran on turn two. You don't really have the time to develop an elegant strategy, right? Like, the only counter strategy to that is meet them with equal speed or, you know, destroy all of their permanents and draw your cards in the right order. Those are the only only ways you can go. Mm-hmm. If you're just a slower deck, they'll run you over. And you can have a deck that can destroy all their permanents, but if you don't draw your cards in the right order, you lose, right? Like, you know, like all the removal decks, like, oh, if I, if I draw my Ulamogs and not all of my Grasp of Darkness, I'm going to get run over by by. Mardu. If I draw all my, like, pushes and Grasp of Darkness early, and then I draw my energy cards, then I'm going to crush them. You know, like, but you have very little to do with that, right? It's your, the, the top of your deck tells you whether you're drawing the expensive cards or the cheap cards first. So, but anyway, like, versus other formats that don't have, you know, you're not playing against a 3-2 on turn 1. You're not playing against a card of carrier that they can power up immediately, right? You just have time to, like, fix it. To cast cantrips, to like modify your hand, or just evaluate what how your you know the angle your opponent's going to take. Um, you know, like we're talking about an era where casting a six or a nine casting cost thing on your own turn was considered no. powerful. You know, yeah. So, but so you don't think it? I, I I actually I really part of it. I love revisiting some of the yeah. From this I, era. I think maybe right now it's not as relevant, yeah. but. In standard formats where it is maybe more mid-rangey and you are doing more powerful things with more mana. Um, maybe just standard right now is more, like, all the cards are are more powerful on their own, or maybe they're all, like, more synergistic with each other. Like, I, I think before we started, I assume it was before we started recording, I was telling you about a deck that I had made. I talked about it on, on uh, Top 8 Magic, which actually came out for, for once <laughs> recently. <laughs> So it's based on um, my preview card uh, at, at top level, which is New Perspectives. It's like, and it wins with like, what's that guy's name? Is one casting cost red guy? He gets plus one for every time he gets flame blade adept, the one mana one two with menace, right? When you cycle or discard, it gets plus one plus zero. Oh. Yeah, flame blade adept. Yeah. So it's yeah. There's one copy of him. Uh, four New Perspectives, a bunch of cycling cards, including Shepet Monitor and um, Vizier of Tumbling Sands. And, Going on top. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, one of him and one fling. So I was saying, like, so Brian and I have been working on this deck, and, you know, it's early days, right? This is a very complicated deck. So I was playing it last night on Moto, and my opponent's playing Zombies. He's tapped out. So I, like, land, uh, I tap out for, for new perspectives, right? It's like, I'm going for it, right? I have two Shepet monitors, so I can, like, cycle, cycle, 
I get into some cycling land, cycle, cycle, cast um, shadow, Shadows from the Grave. Is that the name of it? Shadow of the Grave. Shadow from the Grave. Um, you know, and then cast that successfully, get back my monitors, go through my deck. Cool things about monitors and Vizier of Tumbling Sands is even if you're tapped out for new perspectives, it actually gives you mana access to cast spells. So I'm cycling, cycling. I cast like multiple Shadow of the Grave. And I get to the point where I finally draw one of my, you know, either three or four remaining copies of of uh, Traverse Human Wall, right? So I'm like, I traverse, get my get my guy, play him, right, with a mountain that I've thought of, right, with one of my Shepherd monitors. And I'm like, I only have 11 cards in my library, all right? Like, I don't have enough time to win, right? Like, because I have to discard 19 cards in order to make him big enough to win. So then I just like, oh, God, thinking, thinking, then, oh, it's Shay. So I cycle down to one card in my library, cast um, cast uh, Shadow of the Grave, and then like pick up like my, my you know basically my whole graveyard, say go right. And during end step, I discard down to my opponent's just like what the heck, dude? and I'm like discard down to seven. But then he gets all these triggers after the cleanup phase. <laughs> in response to the last trigger, I play my opponent for the kill. And my opponent at this point is going insane. He's like, "This is the <laughs> coolest thing I've ever seen!" Right, like super cool and i'm like oh my god did i make did i do it like i have a fourth turn combo kill deck in standard right like this seems you know like this this is it oh my michael J is back right so as i'm going i'm like clockwork i'm like uh what's the name of the cards g2 horrible rampant growth but then it's spring to mind Mm -hmm. so i'm like spring to mind untap uh uh hedron archive untap New perspectives. He's like, negate. And I'm like, looking at my grip, which is like a bunch of random cycling cards. I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> you just easily defeated me. And I'm like, well, not only can they negate your new perspectives, but they can just let you go off for half an hour and then just negate your flame. Right? Like, so I think maybe, maybe it's, uh, it's not going to work out. <laughs> but man. You get them game. It feels so good. It feels so good. You ever played a cool deck? Yes. What Is Marvel Phantom? No. Okay, I haven't. Played a Marvel's game. like throwing a rock through the window of a store. <laughs> right? You're just like, you're like, you're like, you walk by a store. You're like, Ugh, I really like that beaded bag. Okay, but, right? but you like but throw a rock through it. That ends me for descent upon the sinful is really. Sometimes cool. you break the window and you go to grab the beaded bag uh, and you cut your own arm. <laughs> And you bleed to death with the bag in your hand. That's Ulamog. Okay. Yes, that's a Marvel. Sometimes you walk away with a beat. Sometimes you walk away with a pair of Porsche trainers. <laughs> but no, it is not a cool deck. Throwing a rock through the window of a store is not a cool deck. A cool deck is like... Uh, like... I'm gonna say like four color gifts, and you're gonna get the wrong idea. Like fireworks, Kirkland. No, that's not. No, okay. It's just throwing uh, a rock through a window. Storm. I mean, if you're John Finkel, <laughs> John Finkel, it's the greatest deck ever. I mean, I don't know. Like Napster is an amazingly cool deck, right? Uh, uh, uh Innovator Dragonstorm is a great deck. Maze's End. Does that count? 
Yes, but I didn't even know you knew about stuff like that. Yes, of course. I, I, I was listening to a podcast. I recently that I did. Uh, rewatched the Pro Tour uh, Dragon's Maze coverage. There was a Mazes and Deck. Well, it was. I think it was. Oh, block oh, oh. And, it was block and block. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I, I was. Uh, yeah. there, there was a standard deck though, right? I don't I, know I how played a bunch it... of different ones. They weren't very good. Okay, maybe it wasn't very good. But and I, I watched it like do pretty well. That, that <laughs> like I think like Bant Hexproof was cool when it was new, and then it was like super uncool when everyone. Like, yeah. Once uh, once there's a cool deck, then everyone plays it. It's not cool anymore. Like when I first played uh, Affinity with Aether Vial, it was like the coolest thing on earth. So, yeah, I play Aether Vial, and people were like, "Is that card even good?" <laughs> Just like annihilate them. So we had this one tournament. It was me, Dio Mapaccio. Me and Bad Bache are the only two plate players playing the deck. We're playing set, same seventy-five of um of uh, affinity with Aether Vial, and like I'm just make a big deal telling everyone that we don't have Shrapnel Blast because like there's good reasons for this. But like I'm just I made a deck registration error, so I lost round one when my opponent called me at fifty-six cards. So I lose the I lose the round, and the, I can remedy my deck after the round, right? So I win the next eight rounds. And then lose an affinity mirror when um, when I have a third turn, whatever the dragon furnace dragon that kills all the artifacts is he has double uh, disciple of the ball right so I was like so mad because I won eight in a row right coming from O one to to get there Baccio makes top eight right and he's like plays plays uh, and he's in the finals and then his opponent's playing like big red and he, he like makes a play to destroy uh, Baccio's like four four creature Baccio shrapnel blasts him for the win and he looks up at me. And he's like, I thought you said you guys didn't have Shrapnel Blast. And I'm laughing, and I'm like, main deck? <laughs> so he wins the PTQ. Like, I come in ninth or whatever, BS. And so I call up Osip, and I'm like, Osip, just play the 75. And he wins Grand Prix Orlando the next weekend. <laughs> and he's just like, people still didn't know about Aether Vile, right? He's just like, he's just like the, the, the cards that people would play against you were comical. Like, everything, if, if you're playing Affinity with Aether Vile at this point, Anything anyone else does that's not affinity with Aether Vial is just a joke, right? But then by Grand Prix New Jersey that year, everyone had affinity with Aether Vial, and all I did was play mirror matches for two days, and it was, like, not fun at all, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's super fun when you're, like, I bet it was super fun when those guys were the only guys with with Death Shadow, right? Mm-hmm. But if every idiot has Death oh, Shadow, yeah. then it's just like... It's, like top eight. <laughs> it's, just not, it's just not cool. It's not fun anymore, right? Yeah. Like, still, Maybe it's still the best deck to try, you know? There's like other words you could use, but that's what I'm saying. You're playing a cool deck. Like, people are like... I don't know, like my Biorhythm deck, I think is maybe... Like, it, it's not, it didn't win the tournament, but I think it was like the coolest deck I ever played. Do you know the the biorhythm deck? About the five color mono blue dragons. Oh, oh no, that no, one's incredible. But no one played that one. So, uh, I mean, I even won the tournament. That was yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was. I think that deck was less cool just because like there were other decks that did similar, less good things. Like there, if if Esper Dragons is you know going on at the same time, like it's not my deck was so different than Esper Dragons. Yeah, like like they were just like like, the much weaker version. Because, like, I had these infinite mana engines and, like, all my cards were uncounterable. Like, that's really powerful. And, like, they didn't have that, but they still cast similar spells to me. So, like, they approximated a lot of the value. So it, like, detracts from how cool it is. But it's still cool. I'm just saying, like, those kind of... Like, um, like when I won with The Rock, that was Saul Malka's deck, and, and Extended, that was pretty cool. People hadn't heard of it yet. But then, like... Two weeks after the Grand Prix, everyone's playing the deck, you know? It's 
All right, well. But you never answered you. Have you ever played a cool deck? I don't think I have. You don't think Nyaburn was cool? I mean, it's cool, but it's not like a cool deck. I mean, even inspired... I think I played Mazes at Instander at, at one point for like a tournament or two, and like, you know, casually, and it was fun. Yeah, I haven't played what, uh, yeah, I guess. Does my Red Green Dragons, the monsters that count? I, I can't, like, I'm trying to think no. of something. I, I haven't been playing, like, no, that's like the definition of not a cool deck. deck Decks that so everyone cool. has. <laughs> no one was playing that deck back then. They weren't playing it because it wasn't good. Uh, well, I, I liked it, though. <laughs> Whether you like a deck or not, I was like, oh, I really like my, my new perspective deck. If I took it to FNM tonight, I'd probably lose to anyone within a gate. <laughs> All right. Or like a whatever would transgress the mind, anything. All right. That this was, was uh, tuning the second best deck. It was basically the second best episode. <laughs> okay. I'm Roman Fusco. I'm Michael J. All right. See ya. Right.